0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Scott DeNoyers, a leader in the New York chapter of the Poor People's Campaign, who responds to West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's announced opposition to President Biden's Build Back Better Human Infrastructure Plan. Adele Schraman of the Sierra Club's Fossil-Free Finance Campaign, who talks about an alarming new report that finds that the U.S. financial sector is the fifth biggest emitter of carbon dioxide in the world. And Andrew Perez, senior editor at The Daily Poster, who discusses his investigation into the right-wing dark money network that was employed to win Senate confirmation for Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: When there's discussion about geopolitics, people generally think about great power rivalry, America versus the Soviet Union, or more recently, China. But as America ends its decades-long disastrous wars abroad, it has opened space for medium-sized powers to become more assertive. Turkey has occupied territory in Syria, sent troops to Libya, and helped Azerbaijan vanquish Armenia. Iran backs militias that fight for Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and the Ethiopian government's war in Tigray. Pakistan has long supported the Taliban, which just took over Afghanistan. Cuba supports Venezuela, and Saudi Arabia bombs Yemen. There's more than ideological alliances at play here. Cuba's leaders, for example, have little in common with Iran's conservative mullahs, but they both support Venezuela. Regimes under American sanctions trade with and support each other to survive. Each case is different, but as The Economist observes, most of these newly assertive countries may find that the costs of intervention are often outweigh the benefits. As the world's most powerful nations have often found, wielding hard power is expensive and hard to do effectively. On Election Day, voters in the state of Maine overwhelmingly approved a state constitutional amendment recognizing the inherent and unalienable right to grow, raise, harvest, produce, and consume the food of their own choosing for their own nourishment and sustenance. The measure, which was approved by the state legislature, was supported by a diverse coalition of organic farmers, sports hunters, and black community groups. The effort was an outgrowth of the state's powerful food sovereignty movement, which pushed through a 2017 law that allows local governments to approve small food producers selling directly to customers on site. Supporters positioned the amendment as a chance for Mainers to take back control of the food supply from large landowners and giant retailers with little connection to the community. The amendment was opposed by several powerful groups in Maine, a poor rural state. Opponents included the Maine Farm Bureau, the Maine Municipal Association, and veterinarians and animal rights groups. There was fear that novice farmers would violate animal welfare laws or not know how to deal with invasive species or crop disease. In 1960, construction of the I-375 Interstate Highway tore through the heart of Detroit's vibrant black small business district displacing over 300 stores, including restaurants and food markets. Today, there's not a single black-owned grocery store in Detroit with the highest percentage of black residents in a major U.S. city. But now, transportation planners in Michigan want to remove I-375. In the early 1960s, the Federal Interstate Highway Act funded highway construction that displaced black communities during the peak years of the Civil Rights Movement, In cities like New Orleans, Miami, and Detroit, construction of new highways bulldozed the economic, political, and cultural centers of black communities. Sixty years later, with a new wave of federal infrastructure funds, cities are reconsidering massive highway projects in favor of community-based redevelopment. According to Grist magazine, Detroit is joining cities like San Francisco, Seattle, Milwaukee, and Boston in choosing to remove problematic highways to reconnect local black neighborhoods. The initiative in Detroit would replace the four-lane highway with a street-level boulevard lined with sidewalks and bike lanes to link downtown to cultural centers, including the Riverwalk and Eastern Market, the largest historic public market in the U.S., This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: West Virginia's conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin effectively derailed President Biden's Build Back Better plan when he announced on Fox News on December 19th that he would oppose the $1.75 trillion human infrastructure bill. Provisions in the legislation would fund expansion of Medicaid and reduce premiums for Affordable Care Act coverage, extend the child tax credit, pay for universal pre-kindergarten, initiatives to address climate change, and build affordable housing, among other programs. Manchin's vote is crucial, given that Democrats need all 50 of their members' votes to pass legislation through the reconciliation process. Joe Manchin, who engaged in five months of negotiations that reduced the original scope and $3.5 trillion price tag of the bill, said he couldn't support Build Back Better because of concerns about inflation and the now-resurgent COVID pandemic. But according to news reports, Manchin told several of his fellow Democrats that he thought parents would waste monthly child tax credit payments on drugs. While Mr. Biden says he'll continue to talk to Senator Manchin to achieve a path forward on Build Back Better, Washington Representative Pramila Jayapal, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is calling on the president to use his executive power to immediately implement provisions in the bill. Your reporter spoke with Scott Desnoyers, a father who lost his 29-year-old son Danny to suicide following a missed $20 insurance premium payment and became a Medicare-for-all activist and a leader in the New York State chapter of the Poor People's Campaign. Here he responds to Senator Manchin's opposition to the Build Back Better plan and suggests how supporters of the legislation should answer Manchin's obstruction. What this man
2: does, first off, he gets on the news and he talks about how China has got 90 percent of fossil fuel emissions. And meanwhile, he's a coal baron. You know, he's, you know, talks about how he's for paid family leave. But this is the wrong place for the bill. Mr. Manchin is not worried about his children getting health care. He's not worried about if his daughter has a blood clot and needs to get tested. Joe Manchin isn't worried if his kids run out of insulin. Joe Manchin is going to talk about price tag. Meanwhile, he doesn't worry about the price tag for his children. They're taken care of. That's the problem we have with our politicians. We're just asking to get what they have. And they're horrified, horrified that we want what is ours. They have what is ours, and we, they're horrified that we want what is ours too. I make an analogy all the time. We built the bakery. We built the ovens. We made the bread, and they're making us beg for breadcrumbs. And then they're saying, well, how you got to pay for those breadcrumbs? Really? It's our bread. We deserve what is ours. And I'm horrified that a coal baron would sit there and worry about making environmental changes in a bill because it might affect the poorest of the poor that would get help. The poorest of the poor in, his, in West Virginia that don't even have addresses on their mailboxes. They had to do a reconnaissance mission to do the state census to find out where these people live because they don't even have an address. And he's worried about expanding voting rights. Those people aren't going to vote anyway, Mr. Manchin. <laughs> they don't have an address to do a mail-in ballot. It's disgusting that these people are sitting so pretty and are afraid to give us what's ours because how are we going to pay for it?
0: As you said, West Virginia, the state that Joe Manchin represents, is one of the poorest in the country. And the irony, of course, is that a lot of the provisions in the Build Back Better plan that uh, Joe Manchin is almost single-handedly tore down would very specifically be a huge help to the people that he represents in West Virginia.
2: Right, 100 percent. And again, he, he's not worried about it, 100 percent not worried about it. It would also affect, like, the parts of the um, environmental would affect his coal business, wouldn't it? I bet you it would.
0: Well, even the coal miners uh, are in favor of this bill because they know that the economy is transitioning long ago away from coal, and there was funds in there to retrain folks to get other jobs out of the coal mines. So these, the miners' union, the United Mine Workers of America, We're we're for this bill and upset that Joe Manchin has taken this path.
2: The child tax credit alone would would help out, you know, the poorest of the poor, you know, which are all in his district in West Virginia.
0: Scott, we're almost out of time, but I I wanted to ask you, as you've been giving a lot of thought to how we change, how we change policies in our government that affect uh, the great majority of people who are denied programs and are living under this austerity cloud. And it's cost lives and it's caused suffering.
2: There's only one way we get there. And it is not by voting blue no matter who. It is not voting for a third party. It's not voting for red or blue. It's us getting out in the streets and demanding that they give us what is ours. We need to be bigger than the yellow vest movement. We need people to stop being complacent and saying, "Well, you know, it's either this guy or the other guy." No, we need to hold our politicians accountable when they start spreading their their false narratives and their lies. We need to call them out and we need to call them false narratives and lies. All the politicians on the left are claiming that healthcare is a human right, and then with a the sleight of hand, tries to sell us health insurance, which denies us healthcare for profits. That is 100 percent the opposite of guaranteeing health care. That is guaranteeing somebody's is going to get a contract that somebody will get paid to deny you health care. We need to be out in the streets calling out our politicians, saying this ain't right. Stop killing our children for money.
0: That was Scott Desnoyers, a Medicare for All activist and a leader of the New York State chapter of the Poor People's Campaign. For more commentary on Joe Manchin's refusal to support Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. For the past decade, the campaign pressuring public and private institutions to divest their holdings in fossil fuels has been one of the strongest aspects of the climate movement, along with direct opposition to new fossil fuel projects. The campaign was launched in 2011 on college campuses, where administrators were pressured to divest from fossil fuels and reinvest in green energy. It then spread to businesses, nonprofits, and foundations. According to the climate group Stand.Earth, as of October 2021, a total of 1,485 institutions, representing $39.2 trillion in assets worldwide, had taken action or made a commitment to divest from fossil fuels. While these holdings represent indirect investment in fossil fuels, a report titled Wall Street's Carbon Bubble was published in mid-December by the Center for American Progress and the Sierra Club. The report found that the direct financing of fossil fuel projects continues, with the 18 largest U.S. banks and asset managers alone responsible for financing the equivalent of just under two billion tons of carbon dioxide in 2020, the fifth biggest emitter in the world. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Adele Schreiman, a campaign representative for the Sierra Club's Fossil Free Finance Campaign, who explains how the new report complements previous research exposing the role of financial institutions in keeping fossil fires burning.
3: So basically, the report gives a calculation, an estimate, of the global carbon footprint that's being financed by some of the largest financial firms in the United States. Um, And the major finding of this report shows that if Wall Street firms in this study were a country, they would actually have the fifth highest emissions in the world, just behind Russia and ahead of Japan, Brazil, and Indonesia. And these investments aren't just accelerating the climate crisis. As the world moves away from fossil fuels and towards cheaper renewable energy, these investments are actually incredibly risky, and they threaten to destabilize our entire financial system, and they could actually cause an economic crash that would dwarf the scale of the 2008 Great Recession. Um, but the good news is that regulators actually have all of the tools they need right now in order to stop this from happening. And last time around in 2008, regulators failed to step in to rein in Wall Street's risky behavior, and the resulting crash ended up hurting vulnerable communities and ordinary Americans the most. So this report outlines some clear, ambitious, but practical steps that regulators can take right now in order to protect financial stability and prevent a climate-driven economic crash. Um, And ultimately, the goal of this report is just to shed a light on the scale of the problem and provide a clear pathway for solving it. So this is a problem of not just slowing down climate change and reversing course. It's also about preventing us from running ourselves off a cliff. That's where we're headed right now. With their support for fossil fuel financing, they're pouring money into risky, destabilizing investments, and ultimately by doing that, they're not just perpetuating the climate crisis and making our future unsafe and unlivable, they're also putting our savings at risk. So we need to be making sure that our regulators are doing what they have the power and the ability to do right now to rein in Wall Street, make sure they're internalizing and preventing this risk and making sure that banks and other financial institutions aren't standing in the way of the clean energy transition and they aren't making the climate crisis worse.
1: Can you talk a little bit about what some of these policies are that could help in this
3: regard? Sure. So the Banking on Climate Chaos report um, actually lays out a sector-by-sector breakdown of which banks are financing which types of fossil fuel projects the most. So for example, the report outlines which banks support tar sands expansion or which banks are supporting coal or um, liquefied natural gas. And basically, the report explains how a lot of these banks have made commitments to have net zero finance emissions by 2050. But beyond making that commitment, a lot of these banks haven't actually said what their policies are going to be regarding different types of fossil fuel activities or when they're going to have those policies in place. So what the Banking on Climate Chaos report determines... Um, without a shadow of a doubt, is that these net zero commitments from banks only hold water if they include a sector-by-sector plan with interim targets leading up to 2050 for divesting their money from different types of fossil fuel projects and instead supporting renewables.
1: Well, now that you mentioned about net zero, a lot of people organizing around the COP and uh, you know, who organize in their own communities against these projects— say not net zero, real zero. So even if they were trying to get to net zero by 2050, which basically means net zero means you offset uh, emissions, but you can still make those emissions if you like plant a tree or whatever. Does the group that did this research, would you like to see these financial institutions commit to real zero? So yeah, so the net zero
3: versus real zero is a conversation that's been emerging even more since um, all these financial institutions that started to adopt net zero commitments. What the Banking on Climate Chaos report um, makes clear is that these commitments to net zero mean nothing without a commitment to divest from fossil fuels now. So basically, there are human rights implications and other implications of these offsetting programs that a lot of groups are incredibly concerned about. But ultimately, the message is clear for us which is that if banks and other financial institutions want to make net zero claims by 2050, it will not hold water unless it comes along with a commitment to stop financing for fossil fuel expansion. So no new financing for fossil fuel
0: projects. That was Adele Schraman, a representative for the Sierra Club's fossil-free finance campaign. Find more analysis and commentary on Wall Street's role in supporting the fossil fuel industry by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In 2016, Then-Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refused to hold hearings on President Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland to fill the seat left vacant by the death of Antonin Scalia eight months before the November 2016 election. McConnell said at the time, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president." But just eight days before the 2020 presidential election, the U.S. Senate, under Majority Leader McConnell, voted 52 to 48 to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court just 30 days after President Trump nominated her to fill the seat of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The naked hypocrisy of Senate Republicans in their successful effort to pack the court with an extremist 6-3 to conservative supermajority was on full display for all to see. However, what wasn't obvious to the public at the time was the dark money network which was employed to win Senate confirmation for Trump's nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. Your reporter spoke with Andrew Perez, senior editor at the Daily Poster News site, who talks about his investigation titled How Dark Money Bought a Supreme Court Seat. In that piece, he and co-writer Julia Rock tracked the millions of dollars in dark money that played a pivotal role in confirming Judge Barrett, but will also help shape high court rulings on women's reproductive rights, civil rights, labor rights, and corporate regulation for years to come.
4: So Leonard Leo is a longtime executive at the Federalist Society, which is basically a conservative legal network in Washington, D.C. You know, most of or a lot of the Trump administration uh, cabinet picks were uh, Federalist Society lawyers. You know they're they're very good at placing um, officials throughout Republican administrations. Um, and so Leo is a longtime executive there. He's now the chair of the organization. He's sort of taken a step back operationally, um, but he has shifted over to eff- effectively lead this conservative dark money network. It's it's under the umbrella group of. The Judicial Crisis Network is, is how it's always been known, um, but it's, it's now called the Concord Fund, and they sponsor um, a bunch of other conservative organizations. And they, they also have a charitable arm that, called the 85 Fund that, uh, that has funded a lot of other organizations. You know, the, the, the way that it's kind of worked in the past is that they've used this sort of daisy chain of dark money groups to funnel money into the Judicial Crisis Network um which then spends a lot of money on confirmation campaigns. Um, and they've been they've been doing this since uh since John Roberts actually. Um so they've been doing it for, for several years and under under Trump, uh Leonard Leo actually became his his judicial advisor. So, you know, he's helping uh Trump select the nominees, um, uh, and then he's helping steer the organizations that are uh, responsible for advocating for that nominee as well. Um, and, and what we've recently found is that um, he put $22 million from one nonprofit that he started a few years ago into the Judicial Crisis Network last year in 2020 uh, when, when Amy Barrett was uh, up for confirmation.
0: How is this money spent to gain influence in the U.S. Senate that confirms Supreme Court nominees like Amy Coney Barrett? And where does this money come from originally? What's the source of the funds, the millions of dollars that fund this effort?
4: Yeah, well, to answer your second question, it is completely unclear where the money is coming from. Um, you know, there are obviously only so many people who can afford to uh, give millions of dollars to this kind of effort. So you're going to have to assume they're phenomenally wealthy. Um, but most of the money is, has never been traced at all. Um but you know the way that they run this uh, the campaign is the Judicial Crisis Network buys ads, um, their staff does this kind of full court press in the conservative media, um, where they're just everywhere, and they they then fund some of the other organizations outside conservative groups that that are backing the nominee as well. So it creates this kind of echo chamber of uh, support for. You know they did this for Gorsuch, for uh, for, for Brett Kavanaugh, and then a, again for Amy Barrett. Oh, and they they also used this group to oppose uh, Merrick Garland's confirmation in 2016, Ob- Obama's nominee who who never got a got a confirmation vote in the uh, Mitch McConnell led, uh, led Senate. But the the thing is, they they also work in, in you know pretty close lockstep with Senate Republicans as well. So you know they they have an eager ally in Senate Republicans who are who you know also want to pack the courts the same way. The Democrats they've also raised a lot of money on kind of like a comparable effort but it's it is it is hard to compare them because joe biden you know and and democrats don't seem exactly eager to really try to do what they would need to do right now to take back the court to undo what's what's become now a conservative uh, supermajority that is threatening abortion rights threatening any kind of environmental regulations democrats do not really seem eager to add court seats That's just not something that's going to happen. And, you know, it is worth mentioning here, Democrats don't want to end the filibuster, but the only reason that Trump was able to install these judges so easily is that Mitch McConnell uh, changed the threshold for... uh, Senate Republicans changed the threshold, basically ending the filibuster for judicial nominees. That plays a big role here, but Democrats do not want to undo the, the same kind of norms that Republicans have. And so it doesn't quite matter... You know, to the extent that Democrats have been able to raise, you know, money for their own kind of uh, counterweight court network because they just don't have the same juice actually in Congress where they could get things done the same way that the, the right has.
0: Andrew, are there any regulations about the money spent in favor of or to oppose judicial nominees, Supreme Court nominees included? Are there any regulations at all about the money used and how it's spent?
4: Um, I'd say fairly little. Th- that kind of spending falls under what's considered issue spending. It's not treated the same way that like campaign spending is. They do not have to disclose their donors publicly. The Democrats uh, for the People Act, they're, they're kind of sweeping campaign finance and democracy reform legislation and voting rights legislation. Would address this. It would require groups that spend on judicial nominations to disclose their their donors. But um, that that bill is not exactly moving um, because Joe Manchin has has said he opposes it in its current form. He's he's supported these kind of compromise measures, but. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't affect the judicial sitting in the same way.
0: That was Andrew Perez, senior editor and reporter at The Daily Poster. Find a link to his investigative report titled How Dark Money Bought a Supreme Court Seat, co-written with Julia Rock, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on Progressive Voices Network nationwide, KTAL in Las Cruces, New Mexico, KGHI in Westport, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mika Ta. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.